0: Good evening. Um, thank you very much for coming along. Um, it's our absolute, absolute delight to to invite uh, Professor Mike Kelly, who has this enormously long title, as a senior visiting fellow in the primary care unit at the Institute of Public Health at the University of Cambridge. Right. You can all go through case if so you're not allowed to. Right. Um, so he's a sociologist by training, a distinguished academic who's been to a number of institutions including teaching here before, so we just found out that Mike used to teach at but Rudy as well. Uh, and published widely with sort of interest in sort of methods and philosophy of evidence-based medicine, completely appropriate if you want a bit of that, and then sort of prevention, health inequalities, behavioural change, non-communicable disease, and end-of-life care, and, and amongst many other things. Some of you may have seen him on TV, heard his dulcet tones on the Today programme. Um, that was when he was at, between 2005 and 14, at, at the uh, director of the Centre of Public Health at, at NICE. You can go boo his as well if you want to for that one. Um, and working to, to produce public health, health guidance there. Um, and I think you can probably be fairly confident that Michael Christine is a, a, a seasoned hand at speaking uh, truth to power at various levels of government at, at various, of various persuasions in 2005 to 14. Uh, a whole bunch of different types of, 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 of governments. Um, so he's chaired, again, countless committees, um, and, and and also advised the WHO on things, for example, like the social determinants of health. So he's the absolute perfect person for the topic tonight. Um, I hope you will enjoy the talk, he's an excellent speaker which did why I've invited in him along, and please can we extend an extremely warm welcome to Professor Mike Kelly.
1: Right, okay, well good evening everyone. Uh, great to be here, great to be back again. Um, the title is A Play on Words. I think this was a song um, that came out during the war called Nice Work If You Can Get It by the Andrews Sisters who used to sing with the Glenn Miller band. Um, but Nice Work If You Can Do It, um, I chose as my subtitle. And that will become clear as I proceed because I'll be talking about the problem, I suppose, in essence of trying to apply a realist principles to developing public health guidelines in the work that I did at NICE. And in particular, I'll use the example of the guideline we produced on alcohol misuse prevention um, and the furore um, that that produced. And um, when Jeff mentioned speaking truth to power, sometimes when you speak truth to power, you finish up very bruised, and I was extremely bruised. Um, after all of that. Now NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence has got two offices, one just off of Square by Admiralty Arch in London and one in Manchester. And I worked in both offices. And its job still, um, although I left it at the end of 2014 when I retired formally, um, its job is to develop national guidance for the National Health Service and the wider public health community. Um, on, amongst other things the promotion of good health and prevention and it's that bit that I was responsible for health promotion and disease prevention non-communicable diseases principally but some infectious diseases like HIV or hepatitis um, tuberculosis and so on and that's what we did now NICE is an interesting very interesting organisation to work for It was, I was there for 10 years and it was probably the best 10 years of my professional career I really really enjoyed it We, the work that we did was based on a set of methodological guidelines, and this was the one that was current when I left, the 2012 version, It's been updated at least twice since I left, Um, and there's now a unified guideline manual on how you do it, Um, if you look on the NICE website, you'll be able to find it. But the basic principles enshrined in NICE guidance really originate with this man. Does anyone know who that is a photograph of? It's Archie Cochrane, uh, toward the end of his life. Um, and in 1972, Archie Cochran uh, published a book uh, called Effectiveness and Efficiency, Random Reflections on Health Services. Probably the most revolutionary um, book published in medic- biomedical sciences that decade, I would argue. In it, he asked a series of questions. And those questions became the basis, not just of evidence-based medicine as it has evolved and developed, but also the principles guiding the way NICE developed its guidelines. So first question, do we know whether intervention X for problem Y is effective? Is that drug effective? Does it work? Um, 1974, I was a, 1972, I was a first year undergraduate. So the year I was, went to university, someone wrote a book asking, do we know whether this drug works for that condition? Second question, how do we know it's effective? On what basis do we make the judgment? Do we know whether it's more or less effective than doing something else? Is drug X better than drug Y for the same condition? Or A, B, C, D, any number of other drugs. On what basis do we make the judgment of effectiveness? Now, Cochran's, Archie Cochran's gripe was with his medical professional colleagues, because he said those judgments about effectiveness of drugs were being made on the basis of what people learned in medical school, um, what drug reps told them, um, what they'd done ever since they'd been in medical practice, and his fundamental point was it wasn't based on scientific evidence, it was based on a whole lot of other things. In effect, Cochrane's analysis of the medical profession, the way it did its work, is a sociological analysis, though he doesn't call it that. It's about the power struggles. He's particularly critical of the power of the London medical schools and the professoriats in those medical schools dominating the way practice was practiced. Then he asked another really interesting question. Does anyone know what anything costs? Answer in 1972 was nobody did. Um, There was no systematic or even unsystematic way of working out what the system was spending on treatments, and whether it was good value for money. Is it cost-effective? And actually, Cochrane worked out a very crude form of what economists would call cost-benefit analysis. It costs cost so much for this. What's the benefit you get back from it? Um, He was no economist, for sure. But he made common calls with a professor of economics at the University of York called Alan Williams, who had developed or was developing a system for evaluating the cost effectiveness of medical interventions. Which in the end came, came to be called cost utility analysis. And if you've ever heard anyone talk about the quality adjusted life year or the quality as a measure of cost effectiveness, that was Alan Williams' work. Williams and Cochrane made common calls, they became friends and colleagues and worked together. Um, to set about answering that question. And of course at the heart of what everything NICE does is is, is X or Y not just effective, but is it cost effective against a, a notion or threshold of a quality. Uh, then Cochrane asked another question. What are the dangers posed to the public of interventions and actions about which we are scientifically uncertain? Why do we do treatments that we have no evidence Sound evidence that it is more or less effective than either doing nothing or doing something else. Are the interventions dangerous? Now, remember, this question was posed around, of was contemporaneous with the thalidomide scandal, um, the biggest drug scandal probably um, of the late 20th century. Um, but of course, it wasn't only thalidomide that was, was dangerous; there were many other medications, and the degree of danger was not systematically and in an evidence-based kind of way um, being put through, being analyzed. And if they're dangerous or worthless, why do we use them? And Cochrane's answer to that was it's habit, it's practice, it's what we've always done. Um, and you might imagine, of course, this wasn't the most welcome book, published, uh, welcome book published that the medical profession received in 1972. But it's been profoundly influential and gives us at least two strands of Follows through, one being the development subsequently of evidence-based medicine, because when David Sackett and his colleagues in the late 80s really posed the same questions about the effectiveness uh, and doing evidence in an evidence-based way, they were able to say actually nothing much has changed since Cochrane published his book nearly two decades earlier. So, at NICE, the translation of those principles, um, in very simple terms, turns on a number of key uh, ideas. So, the original guiding principles for public health at NICE. Now, I need to explain to you, when NICE began, uh, the year it started was 1999, so it's 20 years old uh, next year, we are going to have a party, and I hope they're going to invite you. Um, Anyhow, 1999, and when it started, its remit was only new drugs. Is this drug a cost-effective way of doing x or y treatment and it was an, one of the innovations of the incoming new Labour government um, of that period and they would they designed, they put nice in place to stop what they called the postcode lottery the fact that if drugs were available It really depended on where you lived, whether it was made available to in your local hospital, whether local clinicians could prescribe it. And of course practice worldwide was highly varied. So, NICE was put in place to look at drug interventions and to determine nationally what should be prescribed in the National Health Service. And it may seem rather odd that we've reached by now 1999 that a national system is put in place for the first time to determine which drugs the NHS should prescribe and which they shouldn't. But that was a significant advance um, and a significant change, and of course one in a sense we take largely for granted now. Now in order to do that, it it developed its methodology, as I said, based on Cochrane's and evidence-based medicine principles. But 1999, in 2005, Another revolution, in a sense, took place when the Department of Health published um, its research and development strategy, published the research and development strategy a couple of years before that, and argued that we should put public health on a similar evidence based footing. So, what was public health based on before then if it wasn't on evidence? Well, all sorts of things, some of which were evidential and there were cohort investigations. But there wasn't much by way of systematic evidence-based public health. DH published in 2002 a manifesto saying it should be. And as a consequence of that, in 2005, NICE were given the task of developing evidence-based public health. And a whole team of people, including myself, uh, were transferred from one part of the NHS into NICE in order to deliver uh, the NHS uh, public health on an evidence-based footing. Now, in order to do that, derived from Cochrane's ideas we had a number of basic principles to start us off to use the best available evidence to answer a defined question so not just what is good evidence but if we want to do X say we want to provide doctors with the best evidence about helping patients to give up smoking what is it I very interested. I was sat downstairs um, a couple of hours. I was waiting to catch up with Jeff. And there were a group of people arguing vehemently uh, about how important education was and how it succeeded in helping to people give up smoking. I suppose in a general sense it's true. But actually, that's not the evidence said. I didn't interrupt and say sorry I got wrong. Um, but <laughs> I just listened with interest. But anyway, what's the best available evidence to ask a defined question? Like, what's the best way to help a patient give up smoking? Or whatever. The question is then formulated using the so-called PICO framework. Um, So that means you identify P, the population. Specify who it is you're interested in. What's the intervention? The I. C stands for the comparator, what you're you're comparing it with. It's not in some, you know, it has to be relative to something else. And finally, uh, O, the outcome. So using that framework, which has become sort of ingrained in evidence-based medicine, we try to apply that principle to public health um, interventions. Then you engage in a process of searching sensitively and comprehensively for the evidence doing something which a decade before had been impossible, we now had computer databases. Uh, we now could search the world literature. You know, when I did my PhD, it was done on a kind of, uh, well, entirely on the basis of looking in the references list, choosing evidence, uh, choosing references to follow up, and hoping that you hadn't missed anything, uh, and hoping that your supervisor hadn't missed anything, and hoping that you hadn't missed something that the external examiner had written. Um, <laughs> But it was guesswork. Now, of course, you can check it out in 15 seconds um, online. So we were able to search online, um, sensitively and comprehensively, for that evidence. Then, having found the evidence, you make an assessment of it. And this is quite an important step in the process, because just because it's published doesn't mean it's brilliant evidence. It means it's been published, and it's been through a process that has deemed it to have passed the threshold. But one of the surprising things doing this job at NICE, and previously when I was working at the health development agency, is just how much bad research is actually published in high, what we now call high-impact journals. Um, you have to be deeply skeptical. Now, why is that? Well, it of course, it's because if you're a scientist at the university, there's enormous pressure on you to publish. Um, an enormous pressure on you to publish findings that appear to be interesting and have impact. There's not much of a career to be built out of finding out that nothing much worked or nothing much happened in the investigation you've done. Although actually, in a scientific sense, that's really important. But nonetheless, um, there's an enormous pressure on academics to publish. Uh, There's an enormous pressure on them to view their data to maximum effect. Um, which means that you have to treat any published finding um, with scepticism. And we would often go back to original papers and sometimes original um, data to check out whether something was really as accurate as the paper might lead you to believe. Now, I'm not saying everyone's a crook. I'm not arguing that for a moment. There are a number of pressures on everyone to get stuff out, and people do. But that does mean that... the the review process is not you know, one has to you can't second guess it then there's another idea in all of this, it's not just one study but the principle of evidence based medicine is that the more studies you have with a similar kind of set of findings, the more likely it is to be accurate and there are various statistical techniques including things like meta-analysis and various other forms of synthesis so you accumulate evidence and try and be as broad as you can and it's very seldom that you would find or you would rely on one study and one study only because since all this evidence medicine stuff has been going, what we've learned is that very often early trial data comes out as much more significant both statistically and clinically than what happens when the drug has been in use for 5 years, 10 years, 20 years. You get a sort of um, uh, the effect sizes tend to become more modest um, in routine practice than they often are in original trials. Um, and that's an interesting thing in thing on of itself, I guess. Now, the process is it was in two parts, reviewing the evidence with our broad and inclusive searches. In public health, we were very keen to take a pluralistic approach to evidence, by which I mean we were not going to ourselves simply to randomised controlled trials. We wanted, um, first of all in many areas in public health there were no randomised controlled trials anyway so had we restricted ourselves to that we wouldn't have been able to say very much at all. Um, there are some areas though where there are good trial data. Smoking is one uh, important area, um, another one where a lot of very good trials is on um, Brief interventions in alcohol misuse, which is another good example where there's a trial basis, but in stuff like what's the best way to do sex education for twelve-year-olds, wasn't much at all. Well, none. Um, in in other areas, like if you're trying to look at um, the most the optimal way to increase people taking up physical activity. You clearly need a whole lot of other stuff to build into what you're doing. And much public health is premised on the idea that you can change people's behaviour. That, you know, if I tell you something is good for you, you'll jolly well do it. Well, actually, no, that's not the way it works. Uh, or if I educate you, if I get the message across, you will say, ah, I've been wrong all these years. I'll do something different. Well, the world just isn't like that. Um, and so what you need is an evidence base that helps you understand the reality of both people's lives and their propensity to change or, more importantly, to resist these kinds of interferences in their, um, in their lives. I was watching a repeat uh, on my fire stick uh, on a Sunday evening, I think it was, of a programme by Jeremy Paxman on the Great War. And amongst a very short little episode in... Um, uh, a short little snippet in the middle of the programme, he mentions the fact that one of the things that alarmed the government enormously by about 1917, at the height of the war, were the number of cases of an era of disease among the soldiers um, that were running at casualty levels, not dissimilar uh, to casualty levels in some parts of the battlefield. So they clearly had to do something. And they were trying to get soldiers to change their um, sexual behaviour, as well as the many women um, who were servicing the needs of the soldiers in various kinds of ways um, and there were sort of patrols sent out to go and stop these women of ill repute um, affecting the army. It was actually the forerunner organisation of what eventually became the Health Education Council and then um, the Health Education Authority began life in, in the middle of the First World War. But all of that's premised on the notion that if you, can, you tell a soldier it's a jolly bad idea to go and get venereal um, disease Especially if the next day they'll be shot by the Germans. Well, it's kind of maybe not the most compelling way to bring. So, but the broader point in all of this is, if you're interested in those sorts of things, you need an evidence base that embraces psychology, sociology, economics, anthropology, uh, marketing. Um, all of those sorts of things are part of your evidence base, not just the randomised controlled trials. Although, if they're there, they are very, very helpful. Up to a point. Um, but then we face another issue, which isn't just the nature of the subject matter and the nature of the evidence and being broad about the evidence, but it's a problem within. Once you start to look for evidence beyond the evidence in clinical medicine, what you find is this a series of things. First, in many arenas, there simply isn't. There is a dirt, There aren't very many, in other words, good outcome studies answering the question, "What does?" Um, what works or does it work? There just wasn't much material there on, this mat- on, on the kind of almost everything that we took on as a public health team at NICE. It's a very empty cupboard. And there was still less answering the borsum I mean, awesome question, realist question, what works for whom and under what circumstances. That was an absolute rarity to find that kind of material. There was a little bit of it, but, you know, it was a tiny, tiny fragment of what was available to us uh, when we came to review the evidence, as we found it around about 2005 when we started doing this. Third point, the evidence, such as it is, is often too imprecise to determine the relationship between the intervention and the outcome. You don't know if there is a relationship. It might be an association But what the nature of it might be and how it might work so that you can do something about it um, is clearly very difficult. Um, One of the briefs we were given quite early on was with with respect to sex education. And it was based on the curious idea from the Department for Education and the (coughs) Department of Health that something that happened in a classroom with a class of 11-year-olds would have an impact on... An event yet to happen, the sexual debut of those children at the age of 15, 16, I don't know, whenever. But certainly not when they were just having a lesson at the age of 11. You think about the causal pathway and the mechanisms along that route from learning something in a classroom to your behaviour as an adult. At a more prosaic level, I expect all of you learn some geography um, when you're at school. Um, now just how helpful is that when you're trying to get around a city you've never been to before, pretty useless isn't it um, well I must say the way <laughs> the civil service talk about sex education was pretty much on the rounds. you know, if we teach you this at 11 everything's going to be fine at the age of 18 or 15 or whenever it might be but this isn't, I mean those two examples are part of a broader pattern of you know, stuff, we do stuff without advertisements give advice, um, you put labels on things, will that have an effect? Well and if it does, how does it work? It remains unknown. Well, at least the, the evidence doesn't help to understand. Them, right? Another important point is the methodological study, that the methodological quality of many of the studies as we found them then was actually very poor. You could spend all of your time picking faults in, in the work because Well first of all, even the best, there's no such thing as a perfect study, um, but many studies fall well short of anywhere near perfection or even very, very good. Part of the problem is that the questions that scientists, academics and researchers turn their mind to are research questions, and if you're trying to develop a guideline on any of these matters, you've got rather different questions in your mind. You want to know, does it work? Um, and how does it work, and in the realist terms you want to know for which population will it work, or for which people will it work, under what circumstances and when. Because unless you know those things, trying to develop a guideline with any form of precision is extremely difficult. So the evidence left most of those things unanswered because the research questions turn their attention to something different, um, by and large. There are big gaps in the evidence. There some areas we simply knew nothing about at all. When we came to look at accident prevention um, in children, it's another one that we got. Um, it, it proved to be very tricky. And that's an area you might have thought there must be loads of evidence um, about how to design a playground, um, how to stop children, uh, how to stop children hurting themselves, but also Giving children enough freedom to learn to run and jump and play and climb trees and all those things that help with physical development and cognitive skills. Um, actually, it was a pretty bare uh,
0: environment.
1: And then, of course, when you find the evidence, it often says something rather different to what most people thinks it says. Most people think it says there's a there's a curious. Let me put it to you this way. I I Before I went to work in the National Health Service, I've been an academic for 27 years, and I taught in medical schools and business schools and a variety of different places. There were some things I really thought I knew, and i had been teaching them to students for decades. And it was a very salutary experience to suddenly come across that and say, well, actually, what you thought was an absolute certainty (coughs) seems to be pretty on uncertain ground. One of the best certainties, we used to always argue in public health about fluoridation um, as being a a protector from tooth decay. Um, Well, it is, but the evidence from which we know that turns out to be pretty poor in terms of scientific um, understanding, of course, which is exploited by all the anti-fluoridators. But even some of the things that seem absolutely obvious, and of course, well, I'll give some other examples as we go along. Well, how do you solve this problem? What are the conventional solutions? Well, one is the so-called evidence hierarchy. And this is what was pushed in evidence-based medicine and in clinical medicine in particular. And you might have seen one of these sorts of diagrams or these sorts of tables, which is the so-called evidence hierarchy um, with high-quality meta-analyses of systematic reviews of randomised controlled trials or randomised controlled, including cluster randomised controlled trials with very low risk of bias. at the very top. And at the bottom, expert opinion and formal consensus, non-analytic studies, for example, case reports and case series. That actually means almost everything in the social sciences is, is, is down here. Um, and non-RCTs and so on. By the way, it's called the hierarchy of evidence, it's actually a hierarchy of methods, if you look closely, not a hierarchy of evidence, um, the term is, is, is quite misnamed almost all the way through, but this has been a useful device when you're thinking about areas where you've got rich data derived from trials, it does help you sort out the poor from the mediocre, from the good, and so on. And it makes your task a lot easier because you can then focus on the stuff at the top rather than worrying about all these other things. But if you're in an area like public health or social care or education or any other area outside of that where there, aren't very, there isn't very much at the top end, you have to come and work with this other material. Um, another part of the solution is we need more randomised controlled trials. Interestingly, when Cochrane published his book, he argued passionately that randomised controlled trials were the best way to make judgments about how good evidence was and I think in the context he was writing that was thing to say and it was a significant what's interesting about that 1972 the randomised controlled trial wasn't standard practice in clinical medicine or clinical medical research there were some, some famous ones going back to the 1940s but it wasn't it wasn't uniform now it is I think that's been a big revolution. But there are some areas in the social, social care field, education, public health, where you can't do randomized control. control so it doesn't help you much. The conventional solution is all about trying to control <coughs> the bias, because actually that, that table, so-called hierarchy of evidence, the idea is the things that float to the top of it are less likely, least likely to be biased, those at the bottom are more likely to be biased. And the idea is you can if not eliminate bias, you can certainly limit the damages that damage it can do. And, of course, evidence accumulation, synthesis, the building of the evidence base, more and more material about all these different things, is also supposed to help. The core idea on which those conventional solutions are based is one of confidence that the relationship between the dependent and the independent variable is free, or as free as you can make it, from bias, the internal validity question is dependent on. Refer to it. That question, in turn, is premised on the idea that the relationship between the dependent and the independent variable is a real one. In other words, it's not an artifact of the way the experiment was done or any other confounding factor. It's a real relationship. But that may be helpful if you're thinking about the relationship between two molecules. And a molecule-to-molecule interaction going on in the human body after the administration of a particular drug. However, um, in the areas that I was interested in, my team had to work on, the variables such as they are exist in a complex web of relationships empirically. You're not dealing with two variables. You're dealing with lots of variables that interact with each other um, in all sorts of ways. Uh, That's the nature of the reality. Um, and worrying about the limitation of bias between two variables doesn't help you much when you're thinking about the arguments within these complex webs of relationship. And of course the notion of one variable acting on another is premised on a particular view of cause, such so x causes y, derived from physics, not from human sciences. Um, and it, it, to some extent one could argue works pretty well in physics that you know, there's more to life than physics. Well, life is more than physics. The less conventional approach, which we adopted in public health at NICE, was to uh, quite unequivocally borrow this notion of the um, program theory um, from Paulson's work. Now, I'd worked with uh, Ray Paulson uh, from around about um, uh, 2000, uh, as we began to think about these problems in evidence. and the way that and this may not necessarily be the way that all uh, critical realists or all realist thinkers think of the program theory but my take on it was and what we used to lever our way into the problem is to say what is it that people think makes an intervention work um what are policymakers? why do policymakers believe believe if they do this it's going to have that outcome and what are the stages along that pathway which for the most part remain unstated, that are supposed to lead to that happening. And that helped us to unravel all sorts of stuff um, that the trial-based material, looking at intervention and outcome, simply didn't do. So I I can't can't overestimate or overstress just how important this idea was in helping us to rethink the nature of the problem. Um, Because if we could work out why people thought things worked in a particular kind of way, we were then able to kind of get inside that, and not just say it doesn't work like that, but what are your reasons for thinking that, and what evidence would we need to fill in the logic models along the way? Really, really helpful. And of course we used the standard CMO context mechanism and outcome um, as a way of uh, illuminating that and getting to grips uh, with it. And we even commissioned a number of realist reviews. Um, Jeff Did one for us with the team. We got a commission to look at how to prevent smoking in cars as a way of protecting children. And, um, well, obviously, there's no evidence uh, in randomized controlled trials or anything like that, so we commissioned um, the team uh, working with Bray and Jeff to do exactly that. And there were two, two, I think two, wasn't it? Two very significant pieces of work I thought came out of that. But the politics of it didn't work out at all because uh, the minister banned us, uh, stopped us from doing work. Uh, Andrew Lansley, the Secretary of State, said, I don't want to know about smoking in cars. That's too much of an interference in ordinary people's lives. NICE is just the part of the nanny state. We don't want it, essentially. Um, So we had to stop the program of work. The reviews are published, and you can see them and read them, and they're very, very interesting. Um, of course, politics is a funny thing, because within about 18 months, Parliament, without any evidence at all, had decided to try and ban smoking in cars anyway, um, and even though we never actually were at um, Still, anyway, more on the politics in a moment. Um, the limits of the evidence, another very important thing that we came to realise by using this way of... Levering open the evidence and what people thought was the evidence, using a a realist approach, is of course that evidence doesn't speak for itself. There are a lot of people who have told you that once you get good evidence, you've got the answer. Actually, you don't. What you've got is good evidence. You then have to interpret that evidence in order to understand and apply it to whatever context you need to do so. So the interpretation process is ever so important, but... You go to a methodology textbook and try and find the chapter on interpreting evidence that's not about p values and significance tests and the mechanisms of interpreting empirical evidence. When you need other kinds of judgments, it's terribly important. Um, so, there are well defined scientific protocols and methods for scientific interpretation, many of them statistical, um, which help you determine whether you can. Trust a statistical result of session. Um, but the methods for understanding the processes of inference and judgment that scientists people, particularly people trying to develop guidelines and using evidence, or people using evidence to make policies, or people using evidence to treat patients, have to use inference and judgment, that's much less well defined in the literature. Um, there's, there's obviously stuff on clinical judgment, and that's one very very important part of this. But there's no equivalent of policy judgment. Civil servants don't have to think about the nature of their clinical judgment or the nature of their policy judgment; they just do it. Um, and that's also true to some extent in guideline development, because really, when you're doing a guideline, you're not more interested in the external question not the internal validity question or at least the external validity question is just as important does the empirical knowledge deal with the problem at issue and as you'll have gathered from what I've said the answer to that is usually partly or partially but not in any sense totally however applicable are the data that you've got to hand the context and the circumstances can you apply them to the problem you've got with underage Whatever it is. can the scientific intervention of the trial or the study be transferred to the context of interest? So if the study was done in Glasgow, how applicable would it be in Oxford? That's well of course it is, it's the UK. But it might not be. There might be very specific things about the nature of the Glaswegian experience that wouldn't make it applicable in Oxford or even in Edinburgh. Are the reported associations in the evidence causal? The assumption is that they are, very often, although everyone thinks it's only an association, it's only a correlation. But actually, they're often treated as they were causal. It sort of ramps up along the discussion, and policymakers seldom. I've ever been to Statistics 101, lecture one, and learned the difference between cause and correlation, but anyway, anyway. Um, What do the empirical studies tell us about the mechanisms involved, and how it actually works along the path of often almost nothing? Um, and of course, we were dealing with relational and dynamic stuff, which for us was the realism of what was going on. Which is to say that individuals and populations interact differentially to interventions. So not everyone responds in the same way to whatever it might be. Now, that's true, of course, of a drug as well. Everyone in this room, if we all, if Jeff administered exactly the same dose of a drug to all of you, there would be biological variation, um, which would mean that if you all had the same disease, some of you would respond absolutely. On, as the average but there will be outliers some might get very very ill and terrible side effects and some it may do no good at all. So we know about biological variation in drug treatments but there's huge social variation in responses to policy interventions or public health interventions or any other kind of interventions. And of course when you have a public health intervention like a publicity campaign or like a Um, a provision of information uh, about the dangers of X or Y, not only do people respond differently, the way those interventions are themselves delivered will vary all around the country. Huge amounts of variation, uh, which make a big difference when you come to the effectiveness. We used to apply the WWW test, WWW test, and ask the question, will it work on a wet Wednesday in Wigan when everyone's gone home and did the original investigation? Um, and that's quite a good acid or rain acid test, a rain test anyway because um, if it ain't going to work when the scientists have gone home and the enthusiasts have gone on to their next enthusiasm it's not going to be much good to you um, we also faced a huge amount of opposition to all of this back in 2004-05 when it was proposed that the NICE would take on public health there was a furore saying, well, no, you can't. You, you can't do this. Um, because evidence-based medicine shouldn't be applied to public health at all. It's so different, it ain't ever going to work. And I got a lot of flack. Because um, I was the head of the unit doing it. I was called all sorts of things. On one occasion, I was at a meeting, and I was called the godfather of positivism. So I thought of Al Pacino. I thought, it's oh, not so bad. But, you know, it, there was a... There was a it, It's all gone now, but there was a huge amount of opposition from all sorts of quarters, especially in the public health community at large, saying that what we were seeking to do was simply wrong and we shouldn't even bother. We should carry on with what we've always done in public health. A bit like the way many doctors responded originally to Archie Coffman's book. But the other end of the spectrum, there's another objection. Because the minute we started changing EBM, so we need bigger evidence, take a more pluralistic approach, we need to look at sociology, psychology, economics, all of that, the EBM fundamentalists started attacking us because we weren't upholding the values of EBM. We used to call them the Taliban tendency because um, they, they gave us a really hard time. You know, every, you know, you can't talk inference, judgment, what's that got to do with evidence-based medicine? Facts are facts are facts. Well, no, they're not, actually, but, you know, that, that was, so I was getting criticism on all, all sides. Um, let's go on television and talk about it. It's great. Well, let's take a, a, a specific example of how, when this all plays out in the real world of politics. In 2010, we published this guideline, Alcohol Use Disorders Preventing harmful Drinking. Um, and... We published it in June 2010, um, so in other words, about three weeks, four weeks after the general election that had brought the coalition into office. The civil servants, interestingly, advised us to wait till after the election to release the guideline because Labour was lukewarm on taking on alcohol anyway. It had taken from uh, from 2005 right through... It had taken five years before we really got... Going on alcohol, and that was because the Labour government just wasn't really very interested in it. The civil servants said, "Wait, we did," and they said, "Well, if there's a new government, they might be enthusiastic about this." They were wrong; because they were even less enthusiastic than Labour had been. Um, so there were a number of um, recommendations made, which uh, were based on some of the best available uh, evidence that we had. That that came from economic modelling, that came from all sorts of powerful stuff. And this first one was the most contentious recommendation. To consider introducing a minimum price per unit of alcohol. Now, that would mean that you, um, if, that you price the product according to the power of the alcohol in it, um, not any other criteria. In fact, at the levels we were looking at, if you went into a good restaurant and ordered a bottle of wine, it would have made no difference to the price of your wine because you're already paying well over anything like a minimum unit. If you go into uh, a pub and pay £3.80 for a pint of bitter, that's well over minimum price. What we were interested in was the fact that it was those cheap vodkas, cheap ciders, which were retailing at very, very low prices were precisely the products which the heaviest drinkers migrate to and also the products that underage drinkers go for. That's the one children buy, that's the one underage drinkers buy. So, a minimum unit price, and, and the reason that you can get that stuff so cheaply is effectively because what's going on is the retailers don't charge the customer the excise duty, they pay it. Um, and that's a loophole. So, the solution to that is minimum unit pricing. Second recommendation, regularly review the minimum unit price, and then also alcohol duties. We weren't saying get rid of alcohol duties, but we were saying think about them in a, in a, in a more, in a, in a different kind of way. Some of the data, This is only a fragment of the data, but with a minimum unit price of 40 pence per unit of alcohol, um, the potential savings in millions, we rent health will affect about 80.3 million, prime about 6.8, absenteeism about 13.2. Quite big numbers the economists came up with. Um, and it's a model, actually, the, econo- the economists that worked on this with us, the group from shar which is the School of Health and Associated Research at University of Sheffield, um, uh, particularly led by um, a colleague called Petra Meyer. And um, the models they used there were the basis for this, the way the Scottish government took this forward and did achieve minimum, minimum prices um, in Scotland. So this wasn't some kind of back-of-the-envelope stuff. This was uh, as good as it gets, I think, in terms of the scientific data. We also focused on availability. Um, consider the revision to licensing legislation um, to ensure there's a link between the availability of alcohol. Or taking account when licenses are issued of alcohol-related harm, um, immediate sanctions on premises in breach of their licenses, selling to underage children, for example, and make the health bodies the responsible authority in England for dealing with licensing. That hasn't happened. It is the case in Scotland, though. Um, marketing. This was a very interesting area. I uh, Consider a revision to the advertising codes to ensure um, that when the Advertising Standards Authority sets its rules, the proportion of the audience who are receiving the messages under 18 aren't supposed to be buying drinks legally is considered. Um, There was no duty for that to happen at all. Another one we looked at um, to see that children radically protected where alcohol advertising is permitted and this was an interesting one, alcohol advertising to children via new media. Um, There are all sorts of products um, One where you could join mentioned the brand that you know go online as a child and join the club uh, in the way that you could join the teddy bear club or something like that. there was no regulation in social media at all um, and we pointed that out licensing needed to be done rather more um, systematically we argued and ensure sanctions were fully applied Um, we also spent a lot of time talking about brief interventions for alcohol misuse people who already got problem drinking, or there's a teachable moment uh, after they've been arrested, or something like that, where brief interventions have been shown to be very effective using trial-based methodology. Well, um, 2nd of June, day after we published the guideline, just a headline in the Independent, Government Rejects Health watchdog's alcohol, alcohol Policies. That's us, Health Watch We thought that was an odd. I barked all that. And this was uh, some extracts from the, that piece. The government clashed with its medical advisors. yesterday. it certainly did. The Department of Health put out a briefing um, the afternoon after we published the guidelines, saying that NICE didn't understand the evidence, essentially, <laughs> um, which was a pretty risky strategy, but that's what they said. Um, NICE called for the introduction of minimum price per unit, um, and it said, NICE said, our recommendation is based by more than scientific studies. But the health secretary rejected the analysis and said ministers instead favoured banning supermarkets and off-licenses from selling alcohol below cost price. Um, and then this was an interesting one. It's not clear, he said, that our research examined specifically the regressive effect on low-income families at minimum price, uh, or proves conclusively that it's the best way to impact price on demand. A few other policies. Um, That were regressive, that I don't think they were quite so anxious about. There you go. Um, Now, (laughs) 18 months later, having rejected the NICE guideline, although it's still live, it's never been rescinded, um, it's still there on the NICE website, and it still constitutes, I think, the most systematic account of dealing with alcohol based on the evidence as it was then. And if anything, my reading of the evidence since 2010 has accumulated in favour of minimum unit pricing, particularly the high-risk populations, children um, and very, very heavy drinkers. It have no effect, one has to say, on middle-class drinkers and their expensive bottles of wine, because they're already paying well over the uh, although that got l- c- lost completely in the media furore. A year or so later, two years later, the government, led by the, De- by the Home Office now, not by the Department of Health, introduced uh, its strategy or published its strategy and many of the things that were in our guideline were in that strategy, although they were not, as I have to say, taken up. It lost its way amidst all sorts of controversies. Not least that number 10 switched from being pro-minimum unit pricing, anti-unit pricing, and uh, it became a rather embarrassing topic, I think, as far as that was concerned. But what we were being told all the time is that we were just part of a nanny state, you know, trying to interfere with ordinary men and women's lives, telling them what was good for them, and just generally being a right nuisance. For those of you who don't know, that's Mary Poppins. Um, it's an old, uh, an old film now, I'm not so familiar. But she was a, uh, a famous nanny, a fairy nanny, by the way, that's what she's flying. Uh, um, I used to get called in the Daily Mail the chief nanny that was great until I retired then uh, Dane Sally Davies got the mantle the chief medical officer. Um, I was the chief medical uh, you know children um, I'd say Dad what have you done now? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway um, but i just show you this quotation which comes from the Times uh, the date is 1854 um august 1854 anyone else anyone here know what happened um late in august 1854 after this editorial was published the most famous public health events in 19th century history so there's an outbreak of cholera in soho Um, and john snow um, the anesthetist queen victoria with also an interest in public health uh, Hypothesized it was a waterborne infection. Um, and it was one of the worst outbreaks of cholera uh, in the mid-1850s, uh, mid-century. But weeks before that outbreak, the, Time, the Times published this in a leading article in which it said, the nation, which is but the aggregate of us all, is little disposed to endure a medical tyrant. Mr Chadwick, that's Edwin Chadwick, one of the most well-known health reformers of the 19th century, uh, leader of the sanitation movement and Dr. Southwood-Smith, who was the medical Chief Medical Officer, essentially in the Board of Health at the time, have been deposed. And it's this bit that I think is just astonishing. We prefer to take our chance of cholera than the rest and be bullied into health. And, you know, that's over 100 years ago. Well, that's 160-odd years ago. Um, and yet the debate still goes on between, you know... The state trying to protect the health of the population and the state interfering in the lives of the population. And actually, of course, if you do public health, it's always a trade-off between the two. because you know you, you're not going to please everybody. And clearly, certain public health forms of regulation are impositions in, in on personal liberty um, and personal freedom. There's no question about that. Um, and it's a question, I suppose, that society itself has to agree, What's the point at which it will put up with these kinds of interferences? I think smoking is a good example of this, or an interesting example of this. The first definitive study linking lung cancer um, to exposure to tobacco smoke was actually published in 1950 um, by Doll and Hill, the two who led all of that stuff. 1952, there's a definitive paper um, offering um, a tentative causal account Ten years later, 1962, the evidence is pretty well overwhelming. The Royal College of Physicians in the United Kingdom published its report on smoking and health, linking cigarette smoke not just to lung cancer but to heart disease, emphysema, bronchitis, um, blood pressure, and so on and so on and so forth. Um, the evidence of 1962. The smoking ban um, and the virtual denormalization of cigarette smoking, um, comes about 67 years after the first paper. Um, it took that long. The process and the progress was exceedingly slow, but has been extremely successful. Um, but if you think about it, it's, well, you know, imagine the cabinet in 1962. Harold Macmillan, um, who's been a lieutenant in the First World War. He's old school, old, 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 old school, and the assembled politicians around the table. Um, the Minister of Health, when the first paper was published, or the 1952 paper was published, by a man called Sir Ian McLeod. And at the press conference that Dolan Hill called to publicise their paper, and invited the Minister of Health, the equivalent of now of the Secretary of State for Health, along, Ian McLeod smoked through the entire press conference. And that was held at the Royal College of Physicians. Now, you just think, well, hang on, it's the Royal College of Physicians. They even had ashtrays there for people to smoke at press conferences. When I went to university in 1971, <coughs> it was routine for there to be ashtrays in lecture theatres. Students smoked, the lecturers smoked. so a kind of fog of smoke, um, 1971. Now imagine again, round, we're around with Macmillan around his cabinet table, even if they had grasped the net and said actually what we've got to do here is a virtual ban on smoking, we need to make it as invisible as possible in the public environment, we need to make it invisible in the retail environment, we need to educate people, we need to put the price up so high that it's, um, it's virtually unaffordable, uh, and we need to denormalise it. There would have been no appetite whatsoever politically to take that on. Not least because, my guess would be, three quarters of the men sitting around the table would have themselves been smokers. Um, it's a bit like in the present day. We've got a huge amount of evidence about environmental pollution and its damage on children's health. And I, my guess is that in 50 years' time, someone might be standing in Ruby's house. How was it when they had all that evidence by the early part of the 21st century and hardly anything was done? Um, to change things? Well, the answer is, of course, it's a slow process. And smoking is a fairly easy one because it's one pathogen um, with one clear causal pathway. Thinking about the obesity epidemic and getting people to change the way they eat and drink and all, it's a much bigger deal because we've all got to eat and we've all got to drink. Um, so we can't just say, let's ban it. Although I saw a spoof article in the Oxford University paper a couple of years ago. Um, the student paper, which said they'd got the solution. It was to ban food. <laughs> I hope it was a anyway, um, it's a my my point is here, um, it's a broader one, really, which is that not only does evidence not speak for itself, the fact is that evidence is part of a part of a political process, and it plays out in a political arena, and therefore you need to be as Clued up about the politics of evidence as you do about any p values you run on it or any other kind of scientific procedure you may have applied. So, my conclusions. There clearly is an interrelationship between policy, and do bear in mind that policy making by civil servants is different to politics, which is what politicians engage in. They interact with each other, obviously, but they are different processes. Uh, And evidence plays into both of them differently. Um, Evidence is used, um, but, you know, I've had a quotation from Star Trek, it's evidence, Jim, but not as we know it. Um, Evidence can go through all sorts of machinations and changes when it goes into that political process. I came to to realise, I suppose, or to argue, how important it was to apply realist principles the context mechanism and outcome to the policy and politics and evidence interface as it was to any other part of the dimensions of what's going on. You need to be as clued up about the process of what happens once the evidence is produced and once the evidence is out there, once the guideline has been made and once the guideline is out there, as you do to any of the other any of the other dimensions of, of that. So it's a kind of perhaps an extension of that um, broad idea. EBM itself, evidence-based medicine, has some fairly strong affinities, it seems to me, with, with realism. Um, and um, in, in the sense that, David Sackett and his colleagues who pushed all this argued, believed, understood that things that happen in the human body don't happen for chance reasons. There are causes but we don't always know what those causes are and the job of EBM is to, to, to unravel them. But as I've said, EDM is, is not exactly the same thing as what we were doing at NICE. It was a derivative of and so on. Anyway, there's a series of things which I think uh, that, that's something Natasha is going to put on for you to, to see, a series of references to many of the things I've talked about here and beyond, some of the economics there, um, some of the problems of using different forms of evidence, um, and at the very end, um, This paper or this chapter in um, the book edited by Nick Emmel and colleagues uh, called Doing Realist Research, which you might come across, Uh, I've got a chapter in there, and that describes and talks about in detail, particularly the alcohol controversy, um, in in some more detail than I've spoken about it here. So lots of things you can read if you are so minded. So on the almost on the stroke of six, I'll stop, and there's a chance if you want to. Um, to answer questions, I guess.
0: Great, thank you very much, Mike.